0: Welcome to the conversation on TYT. I'm Michael Shore, and today I am joined on the conversation by Hector Oseguera, who is running for Congress in the 8th District of New Jersey. Hector, thanks for coming onto the conversation. You know, the first thing I want to know is the first moment you knew that this was the year to run. You're running a primary as a Democrat against a pretty well entrenched uh, member of Congress in Albiosiris. When was the eureka moment that I am going to run for Congress?
1: Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me on. Definitely that moment for me is when I saw a picture on Valentine's Day of my congressman standing next to noted war criminal, Elliot Abrams, who is currently Trump's ambassador of regime change to Venezuela. This is a man who was convicted in Iran-Contra, a man who helped uh, fund the training of right-wing death squads in Nicaragua during the 80s for the Reagan administration. And when I saw that image, I knew that my representative was no representative of my community.
0: It's interesting. You know,
1: I love that question,
0: not just because I asked it, but I love it because you really get the essence of what makes someone run when you know the moment they decided. And it says so much about the, the candidate when you know they're moved because they see an association with uh, Elliot Abrams, it was such a divisive figure. And, like you said, a convicted war criminal, actually, uh, actually convicted war criminal. Uh, but let's you know, and that's the moment, and that's you know, interesting narrative. I want to talk to though a little bit about your history and and that you have been fighting corruption. Uh, for uh, much of your young life, uh, professional life. Uh, I, and, and you weren't someone who came to money laundering because Ozark is on the air right now. M- fighting money laundering is something that's been a part of your professional DNA. Dumb it down for me, though. Why, why? What is money laundering? Because a lot of people know it's bad, but they don't know what it is. And why is it going on? And why is it uh, so, uh, you know, something on which to, move, to say, I want to be in Congress?
1: Great, so money laundering to sort of bring it down to the basis level is when criminals try to hide the proceeds of their criminal activity. So if you were to rob a bank, if you were a high-end drug dealer, you tend to not take the proceeds of your illegal activity and walk into a bank and say, I'd like to deposit this money. You actually have to find another way of bringing those illicit proceeds into our financial system. So what that was my big coo- mistake, by the way, Hector. That was a
0: huge mistake I made. Which so was? I just went in back in and It was a huge mistake. I, I, I robbed a bank and I brought it right back to the bank. It was
1: oh man, mistake. you should have called me first, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah. You gotta get a professional <laughs> on your side. So if you're a high-end criminal and you're making a lot of money off your criminal activity, you tend not to walk into a bank with a bag of money like in Scarface and, tell the teller, I'd like to deposit this money. Uh, The way that they usually go about it is that they will go to a place like Panama, they'll go to a place like the Cayman Islands, they'll go to a place like Cyprus, and they will create shell companies, they'll create LLCs in Delaware, which are very easy to create, in Arizona, where they're very easy to create, and they will create companies that essentially don't do anything other than hide the fact that the money that created this business entity is actually a shell company that is being used to bring illegal money into our financial system. So at a previous firm, I directly handled the investigation of the Panama Papers, which was a huge scandal where people found that a law firm in Panama was being essentially only used to create fake business companies that would then be used to bring illegal money into our financial system.
0: I see. So, I mean, it, it does have wide-ranging implications. And, and it's clearly, um, you know, you're an anti-corruption candidate, and it's clearly a centerpiece of, of corruption. Uh, you know, more toward uh, what are issues that are being talked about today uh, and immediately, you started uh, the, the Cancel Rent New Jersey, or NJ hashtag uh, in New Jersey. You started it this month and there are so many people in your state suffering right now. What is it that, that COVID creates as an opportunity for somebody fighting to get into Congress?
1: Well, what COVID has done is it's really leveled the power differential that tends to exist between incumbents and challengers like me. Because at a time like this, the incumbents are just as powerless as the rest of us in addressing the problems that normal everyday people face. So 70% of my district is made up of renters. A lot of artists, a lot of freelancers, a lot of gig economy workers are here in the 8th district and they need true economic relief from what is going on all around us. People are out of work, people can't pay their rent, People don't know where their next meal is going to come from. So it's at a time like this that mutual aid work has become so important that uh, social media campaigns like the one that we launched for Cancel Rent New Jersey become important because this is the only way that we get to bring to light the suffering that is by no stretch of the imagination new but it's exacerbated by this tremendous crisis that we're all living through. And your
0: opponent, has your opponent taken any position on that, on canceling rent, on doing things for these 70 percent of people that he represents in Congress today uh, who are renters?
1: So my opponent is an incredibly bland Democrat, and he loves to say his most common uh, public statement is, I join my colleagues in, and then whatever is going on. So, of course, he put out a press release saying, I joined the entire New Jersey delegation in fighting for relief for the people of New Jersey. He, of course, says, would say that he is for canceling rents or providing some sort of rent relief to the people of the district, but he actually hasn't done anything to make those proposals a reality.
0: If Nancy Pelosi, at the beginning of the next Congress in January of 2021, meets Hector Oseguera as the new representative from the eighth district in New Jersey, what is she gonna find in him as a partner and as uh, somebody who she's going to have squabbles with?
1: So when Nancy Pelosi meets me in January of 2021, She will find a fighter for working class values in the Democratic Party, somebody who is not going to be taking corporate PAC money and so will not be afraid of fighting corruption. She will meet somebody who doesn't take fossil fuel money and so will not be afraid to champion strong environmental regulations like the Green New Deal. She's going to find somebody who does not take money from the insurance or the pharmaceutical industry and so is unafraid of fighting for things that people in my district need, like Medicare for all. What she's going to find is somebody who will be out there, who will be making noise and who will be fighting for the things that working class people need in this district.
0: You talked about Medicare for all, we've, uh, we've gone through a Democratic primary, a very odd Democratic primary, started with so many people, ended in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but Medicare for all was talked about a lot and it didn't, it didn't uh, elect a nominee. Uh, why is that and what, what has to be different about the way it's sold next time?
1: That's a great question. So, Medicare for all at this point is much less a policy than it is a statement of values. Currently, we don't have a healthcare system in America. What we have is a sickness management system in America that thrives off profits for large pharmaceutical and insurance companies who don't ever really care if the people who are subject to that system get better or are healthier in an absolute sense. What we need to fight for with Medicare for All is a system that is affordable when it comes to prescription drugs that actually prioritizes the health of the people who are subject to the system, much less so than creating exorbitant profits for industries like the insurance or the pharmaceutical industries, which is what our health Care system has been for such a long time.
0: It's an uphill battle. We, we got to wrap this up, but I, I do want to ask you very quickly if you could say this. Are you, uh, is, is this time, does it make it very, very difficult to run for Congress, no less in a primary?
1: In some ways, I don't think it does make it harder because, I, like I said, This pandemic has leveled the playing field. In a normal circumstances, there would be a tremendous power differential between the powers that be and insurgent challengers like myself. Right now, my campaign has completely moved to a digital first strategy. So we're reaching out by phone banking, by text banking, by emailing people across the district. My opponent has a fairly pathetic uh, digital campaign. He doesn't have his own website. Anybody who's watching now, I encourage you to go to albocres.com right now and tell me what you see. My opponent has absolutely no sense of what it is like to campaign under these conditions because nobody does. We've never lived through something like this. So at a time like this, it's my generation that is comfortable with technology, that has a good grasp of what it means to run a digital campaign that is actually put at an advantage. So I, if anything, being confined to our homes, having to survive off of a digital campaign helps a candidacy like mine and bridges the divide that might normally exist between these very powerful and entranced incumbents and insurgent progressive challengers like myself. Just be nice to my generation.
0: Uh, you, you don't uh, ever hear a candidate at- Give a website of an opponent uh, that's interesting on its own. I actually agree with your uh, with your thesis about what Corona has done. Hector Oseguera, candidate for Congress uh, in the 8th District of New Jersey. Thanks so much for coming
2: on the conversation. Thank you for having me. appreciate it.
0: You know, in the world of doing interviews, every once in a while you get, uh, you find out who you're going to be interviewing and you say, oh my God, how did we get this guy? Uh, and uh, today is such a case. Uh, welcome to the conversation. I'm Michael Short. And my guest today, John Pettarola. John. How's it going? I'm excited to have you here. It's going well. I'm, you know, I I am uh, always excited to see you, but this is uh, a project that we're talking about that was very dear to you and was a, because I remember when you came back, a life changing experience uh, and a once in a lifetime, presumably, experience for you. In 2018, you went north, you went to the Arctic, and you got up close and personal uh, with the effects of climate change, but also why we are so concerned about climate change. Two years on, uh, when you look back at that trip, and we're gonna talk about True North, the series uh, that, that, you, that you contributed for there and, and you hosted. Tell me a little bit about how it is looking back two years later now, not immediately after.
2: Um, well I will start by saying it might not be a once in a lifetime thing. Um, but there's a little bit of talk about a potential follow-up, but um, it, it was definitely unique and uh, I overall my impression is looking back on it after several years. I believe it was actually fall of 2017. Um, so I've had even more time to sort of you know think about it. Um, it doesn't feel like it happened almost like at, at the time it was such a big thing. It was your whole life for literally months. And uh, you, yeah, looking back, it's just it seems like I saw a movie where it happened to someone. And uh, watching the first episode again, because it's now rerunning and, and one is already out, I was sort of reminded, oh wait, yeah, I was there. I was in that ghost town. I walked past that building, I saw that fox. Um, yeah, and, and I can't wait to see the episodes, you know, of me on the the sealing vessel with the climate change uh, researchers. Uh, it, it's gonna be like, sort of discovering it again for the first time, because it's been, it's been literally years since I or basically anyone has been able to see it.
0: You know, tell me you know one thing, going in, I mean, whether you're going to Yonkers, New York, or you're going mm-hmm. to the North, uh, you have a preconceived notion of what it's gonna be like. What was shattered for you? What did you think, and what was surprised, and I don't mean shattered in a bad way, Like what, what was a, a surprise for you and, and, and changed your thinking going in, from going in?
2: Huh. Um, I mean, one thing is, I thought I think rightly that it was going to be difficult, like physically, um, and in terms of you know safety. We 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 went to Germany to do training for the part that would be on the ocean and dealing with different animals and things like that. And so I knew that that all of that would be difficult, but I didn't get that filming a docu series like this would be as much work as it was. The the sheer number of hours, and obviously, I being the host that means that I had literally the easiest job out of everyone on the team. The actual like the director and cinematographer, they were doing far more than me. But even the tiny version of it that I had, it was a lot of work and under difficult circumstances where you are away from your life for a long time. um, That was a novel experience back then. Now everyone is experiencing their entire life shutting down. But even being away from civilization for literally weeks when I was off on the ship and had almost no contact with the outside world. Um, it was it was a lot, and not just in terms of you know trying to you know, stay alive, be comfortable, all of that, but it was a lot of work too, and uh, that made it even more, I guess, a valuable experience to to have done.
0: Probably makes quarantine uh, a little easier too. Uh, there are some people for hmm. whom Germany would have been scarier than going where you did end up going. So uh, <laughs> so you know you had that balance. Um, I, I want to ask you, John, though. You know. Um, so when you go on trips like that and you have experience, there are some experiences that come into every life that are really difficult to articulate when you come back. Right? It's it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to describe something you saw. What is that that one driving thing that you wanted to share about this that was maybe hmm. more difficult to talk about then, but now it feels so important and something that you really want to talk about about. It?
2: Um. So, so I know what it is, but I'll say first, I. I will never be able to articulate how bad the seasickness was for one period on that ship. You tell people you know, how far up and down the ship was moving or the way, and they don't get it. They've been on a ship, so they think they get seasickness, but they don't know what this ship was like. Right. But that wasn't it. Um, no, the actual experience was um, the most scared that I've ever been in my life was uh, the night that I did guard duty against polar bears. And uh, now I look back and I think, ah, you were fine. Nothing was probably going to happen. But at the time, when you're the only person uh, awake, the only thing you have to defend yourself is a flashlight. And, uh, and you've been spending the past couple of months watching videos of polar bears literally hunting, like cleverly hunting prey, hiding and then striking. Um, it was terrifying in a way that I think we did the best job possible uh, in, in the episode about that, that trip where we went onto a glacier. Uh, I think we did as good of a job as we can of articulating that, but I, I don't know that it actually can get across the experience that I can only sort of dimly remember having. But I know at the time, that was the mo- most scared I've ever been in my life.
0: Wow, I mean, and, and you talk about fear being being one of the emotions you felt pretty profoundly during this trip. Um, it, were you prepared for that? I mean, was that a surprise, Oh, John, by the way, you're gonna be on watch tonight?
2: Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know when I didn't know that I would be doing. I mean, I knew like a day or two before, but when I did the trip, I didn't know that. Um, I also didn't know that when we went to camp that night, uh, we would get off of the little like boat. So we had the the big boat. We had a little boat that took us to the shore, and uh, you know, we we pulled a little like rowboat, effectively, um, onto the shore, and then we're like, okay, we're gonna camp over there. And between the boat and there is maybe ten yards. And one massive track of polar bear tracks going across. So the camp was was right, you know, it was a couple of feet away from polar bear tracks, and the polar bear tracks were just a couple of feet away from the water. And so, in high tide, they would be destroyed, which means they were pretty fresh. Right. So <laughs> that surprised me.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, tell me a little bit about what you want people to take away from this. Like, What is mm-hmm. the lesson or the the experience that you most wanna share for people to take away from and be inspired by?
2: So the entire show is not just about climate change. We talk about a lot of different things. Many of them are related to climate change, but what I would want them to take away is um, being able to see the experience of being embedded with these climate researchers on the vessel that I was on for several weeks. Seeing what their their life and their research is actually like, seeing them talk about their work, and just the, the sheer sometimes frustrating humility and caution they use when speaking about these things. I, I think that it just destroys the idea that these climate scientists are some they're just like they're being paid to lie about this hoax of climate change. They're they're fear mongering. They're hysterical. No, they're the exact opposite uh, opposite of that. And so I hope that people take that away, and also I, I want them to just see the beauty of this part of the world that almost no one will see, and to see us talk to locals there, talk about how much it's changed just in the past few years, how rapidly the change is happening. That we got to see a place that. If we go back in 20 years, it won't look the same at that point, and it might never look that way again. And so I want them to get a picture of the people who are working to stop climate change and for us to understand it, but also to see what is already happening in the world. It might not be in our backyard, although in many ways it is, but other areas are being devastated too. Right, is there a fact
0: that that blew you away, that still blows you away that you learned when you were there?
2: Interesting. Uh, I mean, probably several. I mean, one the fact that we 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 um we stayed for a time in a little settlement called Longyearbyen, which is basically the northernmost place that people live, and uh, they have you know they have students and researchers that'll go there, and um, they have had a difficulty in housing these people because many of the newer apartments they've built. Thanks to climate change eroding the ground, they've collapsed or been destroyed um, by land, like uh, like earthslides, mudslides, and things like that. And so, in this area where they're going, uh, many of them to try to learn more about climate change, they're finding it difficult to do that because climate change is making it inhospitable for them to just do their work there. It's literally destroying the buildings out from under them.
0: It's, amazing. it's an amazing thing. I mean, what from what you experience and and you're you know a layperson when it comes to this, but the notion, right, that that you can even do a nature show without it being about climate change anymore. I mean Mm -hmm. that's over with now, right? I mean it's impossible to do that without talking about this issue.
2: Yeah, I I, well it would it would be highly irresponsible uh, at the very least. But it was look, it was a show about the climate, but it was also a show about, you know, um, it was about ecology. It was about animal species, how they've been affected. We we talked about you know some things like whaling and things like that, how it's affected all these different species. But we also talked about resource extraction, which is obviously related to climate change, but also causes its own problems. We talked about some of the, the political conflict that's led to both in the present and in the past as well. All of these things are related. and And I hope that in the same way that I think many people communicating about these issues in politics and in media and hopefully in, you know, in films and entertainment and documentaries as well, that when we talk about these things, we have to do a better job of relating them, of, of talking about them not as singular issues that we need to worry about, but as part of a web of issues that need to be understood together and also need to be uh, responded to, dealt with together.
0: Yeah, and that's what you're, you are you know, with True North, that's what you're trying to do, to relate these stories and, and your experiences that were so unique. And like you said, you may be going back, but, you know, to most people, this is something that they're going to have to look at through your eyes. Tell me, how do people watch this, John?
2: Um, well, uh, what you can do is, uh, um, new episodes are being released Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, this was starting on April 20th, so one episode is out. And uh, while new episodes come out on Monday, they're gonna replay throughout the week. They're available on Pluto TV, Roku, Comcast, Xfinity X1, and Flex, Zumo, and YouTube TV. You're seeing it there. So you can watch the new episodes each Monday, and then you can watch the replays. Uh, throughout the week after that. So if you wanna catch the first one, you have tomorrow and the next day to do that. And uh, with these things, you never know where they're gonna end up. So feel free to record the episodes for later viewing as well.
0: All right, it, it <laughs> sounds good, John. I mean, it's uh, it's an exciting thing to be able to share your experience uh, with so many people. And uh, I look forward to watching it. And John Irola, thank, thank you for making time for the Young Turks.
1: Thank you.